Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. On this week's Miranda Warnings, we're at the New York State Bar Association's Tech Summit, and we have two of the speakers from the Tech Summit, uh, Joseph DeMarco and John Bandler. Welcome. Great Good to, to be, be here. here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank to both of you for, for joining us here on Miranda Warnings. Uh, John Bandler is uh, runs John Bandler runs the Bandler Law Firm, uh, which uh, provides counsel on information security, cybercrime investigations, and he also served uh, as a state trooper for the New York State Police before becoming an attorney, and then as an assistant district attorney in the New York County District Attorney's Office. Uh, and also with us is uh, Joe DeMarco. He's a partner at DeVore and DeMarco, where he specializes in information privacy and security, theft of intellectual property, computer intrusions. Uh, from 1997 to 2007, Mr. DeMarco served as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. So well, you guys both have uh, substantial backgrounds in, cr in criminal enforcement, uh, as in addition to your legal uh, experience. Let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing here uh, in the digital realm, in cyber crimes. So I think what we're seeing is an increase in sophistication as it relates to attacks on law firms and lawyers. Um, the bad guys uh, really are the evil geniuses that we all think they are, and they're spending huge amounts of time on becoming more and more adept at trying to get inside law firm computer networks, get information out of those networks, use those networks to fraudulently launder money sometimes, or even just steal money from attorneys. Uh, and John and I both have experiences dealing with lawyers as clients who've become the victims of, of cyber crimes. Um, they're challenging assignments, not only because the client is themselves a lawyer, but also because uh, sometimes there's not much we can do, although sometimes there is. Um, the attacks, though, are definitely getting more sophisticated and more impactful. Now, yes, go ahead, John. And a way I like to think of cyber criminals and the economy of cyber crime is those people are kind of just like people in other occupations. And some of them are geniuses, uh, but there's a lot of them. So if you think of trying to keep water out of your house or roaches out of an apartment, if there are any cracks, any vulnerabilities, there's probably some cyber criminal or identity thief somewhere trying to get in there. Right. So some of them are geniuses, I guess, evil geniuses, but some of them are not. I mean, some of them are just criminals. And, uh, you know, we've seen a rash not just involving uh, law firms, and, but I'd like to talk about that a little bit. But, you know, where people, uh, individuals pose as someone else uh, and then try to extract money uh, from an individual preying upon, you know, their emotions, perhaps, uh, making them believe that they're somebody else. Uh, and, you know, there's an old saying that goes back, I think, to the 90s when the Internet started. Nobody knows you're a dog on the internet. And then there was a little caption in the, uh, of that, and then there was a little picture of a dog actually on the internet trying to f fool a cat, I think. Yeah. So, you know, this is not just affecting law firms. Yeah, it's a great point. And one role lawyers 
play, in a way, they're gatekeepers to the financial system. They control funds and escrow. They relay funds transfer instructions. Some lawyers have been used by money launderers. And if you take that Nigerian prince scam, which is done by an unsophisticated, maybe a rookie cyber criminal who may not go far, but there's a whole continuum of those scams where they're trying to get lawyers to receive funds uh, for ultimately nefarious purposes, to misuse lawyers and their role. And we've got to be careful about that. So that scam, which is an old one, the Nigerian prince scam that would be used upon anybody, but somehow lawyers are particularly vulnerable to this because they oftentimes would represent individuals that might be involved in a situation where they would be uh, receiving money. And, and tell us a little bit about the, like the kind of email that a lawyer sure. or, or anyone else, for that matter, would get uh, that, that might be trying to set them up to be a money mule for one of these uh, criminal schemes. Sure. Well, well they, can, they, they definitely can vary. Um, some of them can be from prospective clients, and I know John has advised folks uh, on those that lawyers that receive unsolicited emails from clients overseas asking them to facilitate a deal, a transaction. Um, they can also be lawyers who are actually in a deal representing clients, and the bad guys insert themselves into the chain of communications with the attorney and direct that the monies be sent to a different account rather than a legitimate account. I recently helped counsel a lawyer here in New York who was bringing an action against an attorney for malpractice and negligence, where the attorney was a real estate lawyer whose email systems had been compromised by bad guys. And as a result of the compromise, an email supposedly coming from that lawyer went to the lawyer's client, who was in the process of buying an apartment, and told the client that money should be sent to X account. Well, X account wasn't the real account, wasn't the bank account of the seller, it was the account of the bad guy. Um, and even though this was a you know a solo practitioner, real estate attorney whose email systems were victimized, they regularly transacted in million dollar plus wire transfers. And, and as a result of that, over a million dollars, almost $2 million of their clients' funds were lost. That's uh, diabolical. Uh, because if you can't trust your lawyer, uh, what's left? I mean, that's the last line of defense. Um, so, you know, and I get emails all the time from potential clients uh, that say, you know, I'm interested in such and so. Uh, my practice is in the area of intellectual property law, and oftentimes they're asking for, can you do something about, you know, construction law or something like that? And so I can tell right off the bat that it's a red flag, that this is not a real inquiry. So I advise two things. One is know your client. And in the financial industry and anti-money laundering, uh, that is what financial institutions need to do is know your client. Attorneys should do it too. Uh, who, who are they? What is the company name? Where are they based? Who are the people behind it? And is what they're asking, does it make sense? You know, when someone emails me, uh, I'd like your help buying an oil rig. I know that doesn't make sense. Someone emails you for something outside your practice area, you know it doesn't make sense. So the one thing, know your, know your client. The other thing is any funds transfer instructions must be confirmed uh, by phone. Right. Now, you know, in this age, though, I'm a little bit older. I like to talk. I'd rather have a face-to-face -face meeting mm -hmm. or at least a second would be on the telephone. A lot of people, they don't like to talk, or maybe they just don't like to talk to me. Um, but, you know, people are more and more doing things 
through via text or an email and never having that conversation. Well, that may be an aspect of technology that is not good for us and not good for our mental well-being and not good for our personal relationships. So mm -hmm. if, if you can prevent a fraud by having that face-to-face -face or phone call conversation, I think that's better for everybody. Absolutely. And also, you know, don't forget, you know, there are sometimes legitimate reasons why a client may not be able to come into the office. They may be actually an overseas client. That does happen. We are New York attorneys. We, you know, are a commercial center. We get inquiries on commercial transactions from all around the globe. What I would say is, you know, is trust your instincts, you know, listen to that little voice at the back of your head. Um, if it is a request in your practice area, um, ask how it is that the, at the, the prospective client found you. If it was through a reference, call the reference. If it was just, well, I Googled you, okay. Um, well, what do you want me to do? And if it does involve the use of your law firm bank account for some financial transaction, you're gonna have to be extraordinarily careful. Uh, and maybe that's a conversation you have with your bank. Maybe it's a conversation that you have with the client about the amount of time that you're gonna let the wire, the supposed incoming wire you know, transfer, sit in your bank account, you're going to have a real due diligence process that you should go through where the client is out of town, there's no verifiable link to the client that you can have, and your ability to do due diligence on them is limited. And let me piggyback on that about trusting your instincts. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, 20 years in law enforcement and Joe too, we've seen a lot of crime. There are a lot of people who I guess fortunately you're able to look on the, the brighter side of life. So educating yourself on these frauds and knowing how adaptable these criminals are and all the different frauds they try will help you get those instincts. Right, but you, I mean, you, you come, you're a former state trooper and you're a former uh, assistant U.S. attorney. You know, most attorneys are just, you know, fun-loving, trusting people. And so we don't have the instincts that you guys, you guys have. Um, you know, we've been talking about um, kind of overt bad guys that, that are, you know, reach out to you directly and try to fool you. But then, you know, an even bigger problem is this, the kind of the covert bad guys that are trying to embed themselves into mm -hmm. your computer system, whether you be a law firm or just a private person at home or another business or a municipality, a government agency where they try to embed themselves into your system, shut that system down, and then extort you yes. uh, for money. So tell us a little bit about your experience with uh, those types of issues. Sure, those can be very serious, and I know John has some great writing that he's done on the subject on how to prevent those kind of things. I'll just tell you a, a story that, that was really true and, and quite a bracing example of that. About two years ago, I got a call from um, the managing partner of a regional northeast, well-respected regional northeast um, U.S. law firm, and he said to me, I found you through this series of connections. It actually was a state bar connection, so I'm, you know, plug for the state bar there. Um, and he said, uh, you know, I'm on the phone with my managing partner. Our law firm's computers have been just locked up through a ransomware attack, and the wrongdoers say that unless the fee that they're demanding is paid within 36 hours, all of our data is going to be irrevocably lost and destroyed. And I said, okay, well, the first thing's first. Let's get your IT director on the phone. And he said, well, our, you know, we have an outsourced person. His name is Phil. I said, okay, let's get Phil on the line. So we get Phil on the line. The first question I ask him, obviously, is, well, tell me when it was that the last backups were run. 
And he said the last backups uh, were supposed to be run on a 24-hour basis. Uh, and, you know, I, I, you know, it was early in the morning. I hadn't had my coffee. But those two words, supposed to be run, were kind of a red flag to me that maybe they weren't run. So I said, okay, well, well when were they actually ran? And he said, 30 days ago. Uh, and then went on to uh, explain why that was. Um, there was then dead silence on the line. And I, I said to the magic partner, are you still there? And he said, yes, I, it just took me a while to pick myself up. I fainted. Um, those, are, those are the situations you don't want to be in, right? Because then your options are really quite limited. Let me ask you, though, and, and I, I want to go into this a little bit more, but you raised the issue of the backup. So if you do back it up on uh, every 24 hours to another server, um, and you get, you get one of these outside, uh, you know, wrongdoers that try to shut you down. Um, are they only uh, able to shut you down with respect to what you've done in the last 24 hours? So, like, all your other uh, materials and data and connections would, would be safe? Is it that depends. So? John, do you want to? Yeah, so it depends. Obviously, depends. That's a lawyer's answer. If, this is not a... If on, you back give up. Give me an answer here. <laughs> if you back up, you want your backup to be secure. When you decide how often to back up, it may be a business and financial decision. You decide how much data can I afford to lose? Can I afford to lose 10 seconds of data, an hour, a day, a week? And you can pay for live backup and nothing will be lost. Or you can decide I can handle a day or a week's worth. So all of this we want to think of comprehensively in the context of an information security program. Information security being the discipline that encompasses cybersecurity. And you're balancing three main objectives of information security. Confidentiality, availability, and the integrity of your data. So I like to think comprehensively. I like to use analogies, whether it's keeping your house from water getting in or burglars getting in. You could have a steel door with a high security lock, but if you leave your window open, what's the point? Uh, so criminals are creative. I like to think cre um, holistically. And in my book, I have a way to conceptualize it. Four pillars of information security. Starts with your knowledge and awareness. That helps with, to Joe's point, your instinct in making good common sense decisions. Securing your devices, which we touch and use constantly, then thinking about your data, how to secure it, that's the confidentiality, but also how to keep it available for you. That includes backing it up and having access. And then the last pillar gets more complicated, but that's now we start securing our networks and our internet usage. Also, but I, I still, I, I still have the question. Uh, so, if if you're backing stuff up, whatever it is, twenty every twenty four hours, every hour, is all and it's secure, um, and someone comes in and takes over your system, so the data is safe. But can you operate? I mean, the, uh, will your system be shut down, um, even though the data is secure? Uh, so, what happens then? So it all depends on what type of attack and where they are. So one part of incident response is containment. So figuring out where the bad people are and containing them there and seeing what else is Well, safe. usually by the time you find out, everyone's computers are compromised, right? You never so know. So let's just assume that. Okay. So everyone's computers are compromised. You shut the system down. You've got the stuff that you locked in. 
uh, previously, the day before, let's say, and now you say, okay, we can't access this stuff. We have to start from scratch. But how do we start? How do we function? Can we function without? We can't use the computers that we have. Uh, what do we do? So you may not be able to function uh, for some until, of time. yeah, for a period of time until you get systems up. You got to make sure when you put them up, they're not still infected. Right. You've gotten the bad people out, and if you have backups. Uh, you have to restore them. You have systems. You've got to test them before they go live. So these are all very difficult but issues. On a positive note, yes. however, for those in the audience that are from smaller firms, um, securing a smaller firm and building the kind of redundancy that John is talking about and, and what you were asking about, the ability to restore quickly, is actually a lot easier if your system is small than if your system is big, by definition, right? You're restoring one or two laptops or desktops, maybe three or four. That project, and to plan for that project, which, you know, plan for that doomsday, is a relatively simple and straightforward exercise. Um, so for those that are out there that are thinking, oh my God, this is so daunting. Um, remember that that being small sometimes means that you're a smaller target, not a small target, smaller target. And it also means that your attack surface is smaller too. It also means that the number of devices, the number of people, the number of everything that you have to plan for is smaller. What do you, what do you two suggest when you've been compromised that way? I mean, we're seeing this happen to large municipalities. Sure. To Actually, to computer companies, which I think some of these uh, nefarious operators might take some pleasure in shutting down a computer company. Sure. And they are literally shut down, and they're paying yes. this ransom. What do you guys recommend if uh, someone calls you up and says, we've just been compromised? Yeah, so I think an important part of this is planning before, preparing before. Once you're in a car accident... It's bad. You got to call the cops. You got to call the ambulance. Render first aid. But it's not a good situation to be in. So if it has already happened, do you have a backup? I hope you do. If you do not have a backup, now you got to think about paying the ransomware. It's terrible that we are paying ransom because that feeds the economy. That makes it, makes it profitable. So if people could prepare realize these circumstances and what they would have to do when those circumstances happen, I think people would start to invest more in prevention because I find a lot of organizations are not investing in the cybersecurity program, are not investing in prevention. And once something bad happens, it's never going to be good. It's just degrees of mitigating that bad. There are going to be situations where a law firm has to pay, and there are going to be situations where a law firm doesn't have to pay at all, and there are going to be situations in between, and part of that too is going to go into the risk calculus and the character and desires of the law firm that's the victim. So if you're anticipating, look, uh, most it seems like most law firms that I've talked to have had at least some effort made mm -hmm. at an attack of some sort, sure, whether it's been successful or, or rebuffed. Yes. What is the single best thing a law firm can do to either A, prevent the, uh, an attack, or B, be able to come out of uh, such an attack uh, with their system in, in one piece and be able to continue to operate? I'm going to say the single thing that I see is the easiest to remedy, the biggest vulnerability that can be exploited is email security. Mm -hmm. So many 
only have single factor authentication, meaning anyone who gets your password can log into your account from anywhere in the world. Many people don't know what two-factor authentication is. So if I was going to say one thing to do to take away, it's to make sure email accounts are secured with two-factor authentication, meaning if you're logging in from a new device, you need not only a password, a good password, a strong password, but also proving that you have something, such as by a code from your smartphone. I would agree. And I would also say preparing and drilling and going through the hypothetical scenarios in your head as a lawyer with both your uh, team at the firm, uh, the person or persons or company that supports you for your IT services and, and, and going through and having the conversation that we're having right now around a table about what would I do if fill in the blank. And if you don't get good answers back from the people you're talking to, it may mean that you need to find a good new IT services provider. Now, so we've been talking about uh, law firms, but let's just make it a little broader. Both of you have experience in law enforcement. Uh, what are you seeing as kind of the next big thing in cybercrime? Where is the where's the new frontier for for ripping people off? So the new frontier is that cyber criminals are always creative. So if we get good at preventing one fraud, mm -hmm. they are not going to stop doing crime and go into something legitimate. They are going to try to find ways to do the next crime. We've seen that with these email-based wire transfer frauds mm -hmm. where banks have gotten good at securing their end and now the fraud is pushed off conveniently that now the bank is not responsible. Mm -hmm. So social engineering, uh, meaning trickery and con artistry to get people to voluntarily do things. Uh, holding data hostage is always going to be something and using data or systems to commit additional frauds. Right. And I would say from my vantage point, it's the ever increasing sophistication of bad guys who are going to be spending a lot of time inside your systems, looking at your behavior so that when they do reach out to you with that fraudulent whatever, it's going to have an extremely high degree of plausibility to you because it's going to be so detailed, so accurate. It's going to sound like the person that it's really coming from. It's going to ask for information or data or money that the person would actually be asking for. And so it's going to be so easy for you, even with your antenna up, to be fooled by the person communicating with you that you're first instinct and hopefully not your last instinct is going to be to, to do whatever it is that the person is asking. So the kind of very advanced, um, you know, but it's going to be increasingly less advanced. I think this is what's coming ability to impersonate a counterparty to a conversation or a communication, which is then going to lead the, the victim to fall for it. And I want to add one more sure. point. Securing email accounts is important, but there's a lot of software services for lawyers to help you manage your practice. If that's secured only with a password and not with a second factor of authentication, your whole entire practice is ripe to be compromised. Very true. Very true. So just so we can have an example of what a good password would be, what password do you use? Yeah, good point. So here's my password. <laughs> John's going to give everyone his password. It's very right complex. Now. Actually, my book, the password requirements and recommendations, actually, the guy who recommended it 20, 30 years ago, he apologized to the world uh, a year or so ago. Uh, the guidance has changed, right? We need a password we can sort of remember. It has to be complex enough that the bad guys and gals can't 
hack it. So in my book, I recommend a system. I don't recommend a password, of course. But if you can have a base that you remember and then add on to that base for different accounts. Uh, but your account passwords have to be unique. If you use the same password for LinkedIn that you use for email, not secure. But it, longer is always better and adding complexity is always better. What do you think about patterned passwords that don't make any, it would be gibberish if you typed it, but it has a, in your head it has a pattern. So there's this trade-off between availability right. and confidentiality. So I've got a friend who changed all his passwords to pattern passwords and he's got bad handwriting and he locked himself out of his accounts and that was a disaster. Well, and also if there's, the keyboards are different then you're, you're, uh, you're yeah. kind of lost. But, so but you, do you think, is, is, there, is there some safety in that or no? There's, it's more security, it's more confidentiality, but it makes it harder for you to access. Now, a lot of people recommend password managers. Yeah. Um, they have benefits, but it's also a single point of failure as well. So for me, the, the, the random characters that do yeah. not make sense in your brain uh, that doesn't work for a lot of people. Yeah, I think, I think you know, hard to guess but easy to remember is probably the optimal because it's less likely to be written down. Um, and it's also relatively easy to transfer to trusted third parties like your office manager or your spouse, let's say. Well, uh, Joseph and John, thank you both for your insights. We have a feature here on Miranda Warning. Some of what we've talked about today is obviously very serious and, and important. Uh, we have a somewhat lighthearted feature called uh, Music Book or Movie, where you can share with us any sort of artistic performance that you think could be related to this topic or just something that uh, our listeners might uh, be interested in. So, Joe, uh, Music Book or Movie, anything? Something well, my like? wife's a classical pianist, and her latest piece of Rachmaninoff Prelude is on the Ithaca College website. So that's okay. a good way to relax right. and, and worry not about uh, cybercrime, but I would say unwind to some good classical music, uh, whatever your whatever your taste. The Ithaca College are. website. The Ithaca we can College find website, it. a good New York State school, and. Uh, so okay. there you go. And I know your wife's password is Ithaca, <laughs> Ithaca number one. No, right? it's very so. complex. <laughs> and I think for Book to Relax, this amazing book, I really enjoy it. It's called Cybersecurity for the Home and Office. Mm. And not only does it have practical cybersecurity tips, but it's also got some fun vignettes in there. Uh, including from my time as a trooper and all of that. So I was going a guy named John Bandler. I was <laughs> going to, you know, I heard of this book. I was going to read the book, and I figured, you know what? Just wait till the movie comes out. <laughs> yeah, working on a movie deal. Okay, good luck. That's all I want to say about it. All right, good. I think you said too much. <laughs> thank you very much, uh, Joseph and John. Thank you both for being on Miranda Warnings. Real thank you so Thanks. much. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.